Chief! The Chief! Ah! Chief! They're scratching! They're scratching! Look! Look! The Chief voted now. Please turn the television set on. Mr. McMurphy, the meeting was adjourned and the vote was closed. Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to say that now. You're not going to say that now. Now, when the vote, the chief just voted it was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now. Hi, everybody. It's John here with another episode of Bread and Butter Emergency Medicine. Have you ever found yourself at work on the receiving end of a patient who sounds a bit too much like Jack Nicholson in this clip? Oftentimes, this can be a situation that gets a lot worse before it gets any better, and knowing what to do quickly can make everybody's lives a whole lot easier. Today, we have the chance to talk with none other than Dr. Brian Stetler over some pointers on how to handle the agitated patient. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, we're here today with Dr. Stetler, our illustrious program director for emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Stetler, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks very much for the invitation. Oh, of course. The goal for our topic today to get right into it is the ever-interesting presentation of more or less agitation in a patient that's presenting to the emergency department. In a separate episode, we'll be talking about the differential diagnosis per se for altered mental status in and of itself, but I think one of the challenges that can present for the new emergency medicine provider or other resident rotating on the service can be that of how do you deal with somebody who is acting a fool in front of you and uh, what are some of the particular approaches. From the beginning, kind of walk us through when a nurse or a chief complaint or otherwise approaches you saying, hey, this patient's agitated, are there any initial thoughts that you have? in uh, the presentation. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and this is something that, as you know, I mean, it is incredibly common in emergency medicine. It will always be incredibly common in emergency medicine, both due to kind of chemical intoxicants that we run into with patients, as well as just psychiatric issues that come up. So it's something that we see essentially every shift every day. Um, and so having kind of an approach to this is pretty important for practice in emergency medicine. My general approach when, when we run into one of these patients is to kind of get a sense, if the nurse approaches me and says, I'm having a difficult time dealing with this patient, you really want to have some sense, hey, how long has the patient been there? What, what is known about the patient? I mean, is this an issue that comes up immediately when the patient is first laid down in the room? Um, or is this something that has developed over time? And the reason that's important is if it's developed over time, i.e. the patient's been there for a few hours and has now become agitated, it's usually due to a decompensation in the patient's physical status, um, some worsening of their illness, something that perhaps even we have done, or just a need for the patient that's not been addressed. Okay. Whereas if the patient presents agitated, then it's much more commonly related to either psychiatric illness or perhaps uh, some version of intoxication that's going to be more difficult to manage. Now, in that setting, do you find between either the one who has slowly been becoming more agitated or the one that presents in a certain way, is the management of their agitation different between those two groups? I think it is. I mean, if there is a patient who has presented and you've already evaluated the patient and they were not initially agitated um, and they have become so, most of the time that patient's actually fairly easy to deal with, either through just going and addressing the patient and trying to figure out if there's a physical need that's not being met. A lot of times this is related to inadequate analgesia. Um, it's related to kind of declining people of their basic needs. We won't let them eat. We won't let them drink. Um, it's due to um, perhaps expectation management. They don't understand why they're there and no one talks to them. A lot of these things are pretty easily dealt with, quite honestly. Or if they have become hypoxic and become agitated due to that and have altered mental status, something to that extent, i.e. a change in their physical condition, 
all those things tend to be pretty straightforward to deal with. The, the patient who was just laid down and is agitated and difficult to deal with is a kind of a separate category in my mind. Gotcha. And I think that's a great point. I mean, the one who has been changing before our eyes, often when we're not looking at them, as it's been right. possibly hours before since exactly. we've seen them. Exactly. Um, I think those are good points to readdress what brought them here in the first place and what can we do differently to, to bring that to, to improve. Sure. The one who's laid down, plopped down by BMS, by police or whatever else that's been agitated, I've often heard that an initial approach can be to try to de-escalate the situation. Have you found any possible, any tactics, at least in terms of your interaction with a patient that has been helpful in that setting? Yeah, absolutely. I think you want to, and experience teaches you this, although a lot of people who are successful in emergency medicine have a pretty good gestalt of the patient, and you want to get a sense for the underlying nature of their agitation. And by that I mean... It may seem paradoxical, but patients who have psychiatric illness as their underlying cause for agitation actually tend to be more amenable to de-escalation. You, they tend to respond to a one-on-one conversation. They tend to be able to interact, and you can kind of address the issues that brought them in. Patients who may otherwise be reasonably normal individuals who are intoxicated are very, very, very difficult to de-escalate and redirect just because they're not making logical decisions because of their intoxicants. So that subgroup of patients is probably going to require some version of chemical sedation slash restraint. Gotcha. And do you find that there's a particular time window in which you're able to tell that if they're going to be able to be talked down per se? or is I mean, I guess the real question is, how long do we try at this before we move to other... That's a great question. And, I mean, you tend to see people's practice patterns evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, from my standpoint, if I can't make some sort of a connection with them and attempt to de-escalate the situation within 60 seconds of their arrival, I'm not going to be able to, typically. I mean, one of the things that you will see is it's such heavy resource utilization on the nurse and the medic and the pod team to try to continually de-escalate the intoxicated patient Mm -hmm. and ultimately unsafe for all of those members to try to do so, that it's better to try to take care of the patient in a safe fashion and probably sedate slash restrain them early, gotcha. as opposed to if you can walk in the room and kind of make a connection with the patient, you usually know it within a minute or so. Okay. Well, that, and that's good to know, I think, because that's one of the questions I had earlier on in residency is, really, how long do I try at this? I mean, is it worth spending repeat visits, et cetera? And I think both from a time management and a safety standpoint, as you mentioned, that uh, to expedite treatment if it's needed, I think is, is important. Right. I think the intoxicated patient, you can, while you're interacting with them, you can de-escalate it in that second. Mm-hmm. Um, although, as soon as you walk out of the room, it tends to escalate again mm-hmm. almost okay. immediately. And so it's just, I mean, it's essentially you as a one-on-one from a de-escalation standpoint, which, as you know, in an emergency medicine, you just can't do that. Right. Yeah. Good point. Now, it's say we find ourselves in that setting then we've got a patient spent you know the due diligence of a minute or so trying to to rectify the situation without any other intervention say you have that decision we need to use some pharmacology to help this patient in terms of sedation are there any particular uh, history points or anything you need to know before going forward and choosing an agent in general no i mean obviously an assessment of the patient's overall mental status is important if they were somewhat obtunded, they wouldn't be listed as agitated to begin with. So mm-hmm. presumably they are awake, alert, they are more than interactive. Um, so from that standpoint, not really. Um, I have found over the years that I tend to prefer a combination of a couple of agents, but I don't really need to alter it that much based on 
presumably what the patient may have taken beforehand. A lot of times the history is both unobtainable from the patient and mm -hmm. doesn't help me a ton anyway. What is your typical cocktail of choice? What, do you, what have you found particular success with in sedation? Um, I like a combination of benzodiazepines and butyrophenones, i.e. Haldol, mm. um, as, a, as a very good combination of agents that will uh, sedate the patient to the point that they are still safe, they are still breathing spontaneously, but also don't require physical restraint for a prolonged period of time that mm -hmm. may also kind of put them in danger. Gotcha. Any particular dose that you found is a pretty safe way to start? I mean, in the setting of if we aren't necessarily as familiar with the, the overall use of these medicines, is there a pretty safe range we can begin? Sure. I mean, I think a uh, usually these will be administered IM. Mm -hmm. I think it's semi-pointless to try to do IV medications in a patient who's agitated because it's just the amount of time that it takes you to secure IV access. Mm -hmm. um, if you could secure IV access, you probably wouldn't need to sedate the patient that much anyway. So, I mean, these are intramuscular doses that we're discussing. Okay. Um, I tend to start at 10 milligrams of haloperidol um, and typically 5 to 10 milligrams of, of midazolam okay. um, in combo kind of together at the same time. Um, and that works very well to not provide too much respiratory depression, mm -hmm. um, but also to help within typically about five to 10 minutes kind of sedate the patient to the point that they're very manageable. So you have kind of that window. And if it's not within five to 10 minutes, is that one where you find yourself redosing or is it... Uh something that you'll typically need to do anything different. If you have, if the patient hasn't really achieved any effect by 10 minutes, um, then you're probably going to need to redose. Okay. Although usually that also requires removal of stimulus, i.e. Um, if you don't have 10 people leaning on them and usually up front you have probably had to put them in some version of restraint. Mm -hmm. And if they're in restraint and then you remove the rest of the stimulus after the medications are administered, those doses tend to be effective. But gotcha. at about 10 minutes if they are still not effective, then I will certainly redose at that point. If Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. Ah, uh, benzodiazepine and an antipsychotic, a match made in heaven. Personally, I've had good success with this combination as well. I found midazolam offers a bit of a quicker onset for sedative effect than haldoperidol alone, but you might find yourself asking what other options are out there. In our facility, another frequently used agent is Geodon or Zeprazidone. A dose of 20 milligrams IM is a good starting point. Uh, you can see the attached blog post for some more discussion regarding benefits versus downsides of this medication, as well for some discussion about other possible agents. In short, there are fewer incidents of extrapyramidal symptoms with this second-generation antipsychotic. However, this medication needs to be reconstituted by the nurses before it can be administered, which adds a couple of minutes to the process, which really isn't so big of a deal when the patient's agitated but on their stretcher by themselves as opposed to when they have six or seven police officers having to hold them down. Something to consider. That being said, with these use of, of the medications, are there any, in terms of monitoring parameters or things from a safety standpoint that after they're administered you think we need to employ, or at that dose is it typically pretty safe to the point that you don't have much concern for any complication? That's a yes to both of those. I mm -hmm. don't have concern for complication, although you would, once the patient gets to the point where they are sleeping mm. or sedated, um, I certainly like to have a pulse ox on the patient, um, and it's nice to have them on a cardiac monitor. Mm -hmm. um, I presume that if they're still screaming and agitated, their oxygenation is probably reasonable, and you can't keep a pulse ox on them anyway. Right. But I like to have a pulse ox on them, if nothing else, and ideally a cardiac monitor as well. Amongst the agents that are used, I mean, as I've seen, multiple providers have different kind of approaches in terms of what they like to use for chemical sedation. Are there any agents that you have found have 
any particular dangers for a certain population. I know we've talked about there's the psychotic patient, there's the intoxicated patient, different pathologies leading to their agitation. Is there any scenario that you find any particular danger with any of the agents that we use? Um, in general, the answer is no. I think benzodiazepines are a very good agent. I think if you use them in monotherapy for a truly agitated patient, sometimes it requires such high doses that it can cause respiratory depression and hypoxia, um, which is why I like the combination of agents. Mm -hmm. um, because if I were going to try to sedate someone just with midazolam or lorazepam, um, sometimes I get to 20 to 30 milligrams of midazolam, mm -hmm. which particularly if the patient has a co-ingestion, typically ethanol and something else that provides respiratory depression, then I do start to get concerned about hypoxia and respiratory okay. depression at that point. Um, so I think with the combo, no. But with isolated benzos, I do get concerned eventually. There's some theoretical concern about QT prolongation and, uh, and dysrhythmias related to the butyrophenones and some of the other uh, typical and atypical antipsychotics. Although in clinical practice at the doses that we use, I have not found that to ever be an issue. Right. I heard about that uh, mentioned before as well. Personally, I haven't had any experience with anyone's QT becoming more prolonged in that setting. Is that one that you'll routinely be getting pre or post EKGs. I know often for the workup after someone is sedated, we'll be getting an EKG anyway um, for what our concern for the possible primary pathology may be. Um, but have you found that it's necessary if there is no concern for cardiac ideology to just do one in the sense that we've given Haldol or something else that might? Um, it's a good question. It's an unobtainable study in an agitated patient, right? So right. you can't get it. So you either have to make the decision that you're going to use the agent anyway or that you're not going to use the agent. Mm -hmm. um, as I've said, over um, 15 years of clinical practice at this point, I've never once had a problem and used the agent's um, essentially every shift or close to every shift, um, which is just experiential practice. But at the same right. point in time, in the doses that we use, you will occasionally see very transient prolongation of the QTC if you monitor it, mm -hmm. but I've never had a dysrhythmia or other concern related to it. So I don't think you can obtain an EKG beforehand, mm -hmm. and um, I will employ the agents anyway. Right. And if anything, I mean, some have advocated for just like a review the chart really quick, see if they've had an EKG in the past. But again, that's not something that I've really had much problems with before. No, I mean, I anytime agree. I've checked, I've never really had a prolonged QT to begin with. I agree. Um, and I don't find that. the review of the record in these patients to really help you. And it's time intensive. I mean, it takes five minutes to actually look through those sorts of things. Right. And that's five minutes of the person who's already in agitated delirium and at risk of dysrhythmia is just from whatever they took to get them there mm -hmm. um, to just have people laying on them while they scream. So, right. All right. Well, Dr. Seller, we thank you again for joining us and uh, being able to share these kind of tips about how to initially manage these types of patients. Do you have any other uh, last bits of advice for uh, our listeners out there? No, I think, I mean, I think ultimately medicine is an art as much as it's a science. And so um, I think that some element of exploration within this realm is reasonable. Um, but one thing that I have learned over the years is just the caution of for the safety of the team and for the safety of the patient, um, getting to some version of chemical sedation, anxiolysis early on is probably helpful rather than trying to redirect, allowing the patient to potentially take flight or suffer an injury just in being restrained. Um, it's better to try to get in front of it and sedate them early and allow both the other patients in the department as well as your providers to be safe. Well, we thank you again and uh, tune in next time. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, you like the tune in next time. I do. That's my, great. My mom said I had a face for radio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>